Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. In The Lead this week, we look back at Egypt during the 1948 war with Israel and how its loss led to a revolution. Early in 1947, Britain announced its intention to end its mandate in neighbouring Palestine. On November the 29th of the same year, the UN General Assembly voted by a two-thirds majority for a plan to partition Palestine into two states, one Jewish and one Arab. All six Arab member states voted against it. Protests swelled in the region as a growing number of Arab volunteers left to join escalating clashes in Palestine. On May the 14th, 1948, Israel declared independence and the next day, Britain formally withdrew. A few hours later, some 10,000 Egyptian soldiers crossed into Palestine at Rafah. By the end of the year, the Israelis had managed to occupy all of the Negev up to the former Egypt-Palestine frontier, except for the Gaza Strip. I'm joined today by Chloe Borderwick, a writer and researcher focused on the history of information and the Arab world. She holds a PhD in history and Middle Eastern studies from Harvard University and is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research. In her recent article for New Lines, Chloe looks at Egypt's defeat in the 1948 Arab-Israeli war in Palestine and how one rumor about the loss came to take on special explanatory power. Chloe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lydia. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start by talking about the climate in Egypt leading up to the war. You characterize it as a decade of dissatisfaction and distrust. There was a lot going on domestically, to put it mildly. Can you paint the picture for us a little? Sure. You know, I think it's important to emphasize before we start talking about uh, rumors and about the war in Palestine itself, that this was a period of turmoil. By the 1940s, um, the British occupation in Egypt, which had begun in 1882, was meeting with quite a bit of anti-colonial nationalism. On the throne, we have King Farouk, who presided over a period of profit-seeking, capitalist excess, etc., So it was an era in the 1940s in which there was both turmoil related to anti-British activism. Of course, we're looking at the post-World War II period. And we're also looking at a period in which there's increasing dissatisfaction with the economic situation in the country. So we have domestic discontent. Uh, We have a series of political assassinations, several actually between 1945 and 1948. We also have um, increasing labor activism which, of course, unsettled authorities in Egypt as well. And then there was also an outbreak of disease. So there are quite a few things going on before the war breaks out. Well, yeah, that does sound like a lot of turmoil. And when you say assassinations, I mean, that included two prime ministers, right? Between 1945 to 1948. So that's political turmoil. But as you as you describe, there's economic turmoil, there's a skyrocketing cost of living. So, you know, reduction in quality of life for so many people. Post-war unemployment as well. Yeah. Right. Unemployment. A military blow was the last thing the country needed, right? Right. And I think, um, you know, it's important to note that a military loss was not what Egyptians expected. Right. And this is really crucial to the story. So uh, perhaps I'll I'll dig into that a little bit more, um, because I think that the gap between expectations and reality is crucial to understanding why the rumor that we'll be talking about was so powerful. 
So what the Egyptian generals basically considered it a shoo-in, right? This operation in Palestine that they were preparing for. And I mean, it's it's true that the Egyptian force was the largest among the Arab armies at the time. So that should have served in its advantage. So were the generals just showing bombastic military bravado? How was Egypt's military actually performing at this point? Yes. So Egypt's military had not fought in a combat operation, a major combat operation, let's say, in quite some time. And I think that's very important to note. In fact, many of the the standing force of the army had largely been deployed at this point to maintain domestic order. There actually was quite a bit of disagreement among uh, among officials, uh, both, both civil and military officials in Egypt, leading up to the declaration of war, because there were many officials who did not feel Egypt was adequately prepared to take on this kind of war. Um, ultimately, I mean, there were there were several things going on, and I think I don't want to digress too far. But one, of course, was Egypt's uh, competition or relationship with the other Arab states, and certainly a kind of uh, rivalry between um, Egypt and Jordan, and that's quite significant. But also within Egypt itself, the uh, the sort of unrealistic expectations, partly derived from poor intelligence, which is quite significant, and partly um, from a lack of having been tried, actually. There was not much experience within living. Well, there's also, you talk about the regional. I mean, there's also obviously Israel. And um, at this point, the UN and US had placed an embargo on arms imports to Palestine, which obviously at that point included the area of Israel. And that had an enormous impact. How did Israel gain the upper edge? This is interesting. I mean, there there was an there was a first arms embargo um, uh, imposed by the United States, and this actually really frustrated the British, who of course had treaties with Arab states that involved defense. And so there was a sense among many British officials that this actually put them sort of between a rock and a hard place, between ostensibly being obligated to provide for Arab defense and also dealing with tensions with the United States, which did not want the Arab states in particular to access arms. The lack of suitable arms forms the backdrop for for this story because the Egyptian army was not very well equipped at this particular moment, certainly not to fight this kind of war. Israelis were somewhat more successful, I should say, at procuring arms from various places in Europe, in particular Czechoslovakia, they were somewhat better equipped. But on top of that, Egypt's military really was suffering from a lot of institutional problems, internal problems, right? Like low morale, inadequate training, as you've said, a lack of experience. Yeah, and I think a significant internal problem was distrust of the Minister of Defence, Haider Pasha, who was a political appointee, basically, of the king, an ally of the king, and was not himself an experienced soldier. And so the the, um, career officers, they were quite distrustful of Haider Pasha's leadership and saw him as someone who didn't really know what he was doing. And so there are these frictions between different levels of the army. And eventually, you know, the top brass, Haidar and his allies were the ones who would ultimately be blamed for the defeat and not so much some of these somewhat lower level officers who did have more military training or at least had been educated in the military academy. 
And as you have noted, Nasser's memoir prominently includes many of these critiques. He talks about the bewilderment and incompetence which characterise the high command. He even says this could not be a serious war. There was no concentration of forces, no accumulation of ammunition and equipment. There was no reconnaissance, no intelligence, no plans. Mm. So it was no secret, was it? So that's an interesting question. Nasser wrote this after the war, after actually after 1952. It wasn't a secret in one sense. Um, Certainly it wasn't a secret to the officials who were involved in planning for the war and who, as I said, many of whom actually had quite quite significant qualms about entering it in the first place. Mm. But it does not seem that the public was aware of how just how unprepared Egypt was to enter the war. They are quite logical explanations, aren't they? These, everything we've talked about, it's all, it's not just logical, there was evidence for it. So how did an alternate narrative come to dominate the conversation? Yeah, so this is, this gets to the heart of the story here that I try to tell in my piece. So at the beginning of the, of the war, there were full declarations that conveyed a sense of extraordinary confidence that perhaps internally even many of the leading officials did not feel. But the prediction that was at least conveyed to the public was that um, Egypt would triumph in this war against the Zionist forces within two weeks, and Egypt would be occupying Tel Aviv. Now, of course, this is not what happened. But having made such a, I guess, a bold prediction at the start of the war, it was only a matter of weeks before it became clear, really, that this was not really what was happening. This is where things start to get interesting. And, and, and really what, what interests me most in talking about the anatomy of rumor is the relationship between disinformation or obfuscation on the one hand and kind of what sorts of strategies people use to make sense of it, to critique, to challenge, to come up with alternative explanations that at least are within the realm of the plausible. I think sometimes we think of rumor as something kind of nefarious or unreliable, but I think what's so important about rumor and so interesting is rumor tells us about the horizon of the plausible, what actually is believable within the landscape of what people know to be true. Hmm. And in this case, we can trace the, the narratives that then emerged over the course of 1948, you know, after it became clear that the Egyptian army was not in Tel Aviv. It's a few months later, it's still not there. Well, what's really going on? And at this point, the initial, you know, after after a couple of months, there's a series of ceasefires, um, which uh, sort of were mostly pauses in the fighting, but some continued. And during these long months, there was there was a considerable drop off, let's say, in the public information or public disinformation that was being um, spread through newsreels, newspapers, public announcements, etc. Well, we're just getting to the heart of it. What was this rumor that came to dominate? Yeah, so the rumor that came to dominate was the notion that Egypt lost the war in Palestine because its political leaders had procured, they had profited from, and then knowingly supplied their own troops with dysfunctional weapons. And by dysfunctional, I mean weapons that exploded on contact, you know, hand grenades that blew up when someone picked them up. Um, cannons that fired backwards. And that's levels upon levels of symbolism, right? Because you've got the elites taking advantage. You've got the elites betraying the army, the soldiers, the the people on the ground and betraying the country. And there's this larger political identity battle going on that they are also betraying if 
this was true, which of course it wasn't. And so, I mean, it's, it's almost designed, isn't it, to mobilize people? Correct. And, you know, it was both true and not true. I think whether one wants to talk about the existence of bad quality weapons, and indeed many of the weapons were pretty bad because of the reasons we've already spoken about, the details of specific deals to procure those weapons, um, and the details of those are hard to verify, I have to say. But um, most historians have concluded that, yes, there was, you know, there was corruption, but perhaps not in quite the ways or in quite um, through quite the avenues that people spoke about in, at the time. Well, but then most Berlinians agreed, that, and this is here, where, which is not true, the degree to which these weapons were actually responsible for the loss. So there's a question of causality that I think is where the uh, the narrative falls down. Uh, of course, we've as we've already discussed, there were many reasons for the loss, most of them somewhat less dramatic and more conventional. But I think it's indisputable that the narrative captured a larger truth insofar as it served as a shorthand, as you've said, for a deeper set of grievances with the political right, order. Right, right. Well, there was, a, there were, as you say, it's, it, it's confusing to think about it because there, there is certain evidence. So there was an audit, I think you wrote about it, Correct. that revealed that only 25% of the budget um, that was designated for weapons was actually used during the right. 1948 war. And that is clear corruption. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to just turn to another angle of all of this because... I mean, going back to 1947, in which, in, in a coincidence, radio broadcasting was nationalised by the Egyptian government, which yeah. proved to be perfect timing, right, for communicating a more quixotic right. version of the battles. <laughs> um, right. And your research centres around all of these themes of state secrecy and information anxiety. Right. So can you talk a little bit now about the role of the press in carrying mm. the message that wasn't necessarily conveying reality? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the press of, in, in Egypt was extraordinarily vibrant, extensive. Egypt from 1876 had uh, quite an active um, newspaper culture. The official bulletin predates that by several decades. And so, you know, there, there was quite a lot of coverage at the beginning of the war in newspapers. And as you mentioned, radio, also newsreels, you know, um, uh, visual cinematic newsreels of the um, of the conflict, and it's interesting because you know, in some ways, I'm talking here in this piece about the absence of information, certainly the absence of of accurate information about what was happening as as the trajectory of the war seemed to go in a direction that was not what people had hoped. But in fact, there was an enormous amount of information, um, and that was conveyed through all of these different media. And in certain respects, the Palestine War was the beginning of new ways of conveying information to people. There was, for example, a correspondent for Lahram, uh, which is the the most famous uh, Egyptian newspaper, who went up in an airplane to report on, on what sort of Tel Aviv looked like from the air. This was in the very early days of the war. Um, to report on, you know, the landscape, the aerial landscape of the conflict. And the, the, the idea of embedding journalists, newspaper journalists primarily, with the uh, Egyptian troops was something that, because again, Egypt had not actually fought a war like this in decades, was happening for the first time. So people had a kind of proximity to this conflict, um, not only because 
you know, there were a lot of common soldiers who were regular people, but also because people read and heard and watched scenes from this from this war, which involved their own troops. And this isn't, of course, we're following World War II. There was plenty of journalism like that during World War II, but those were not Egyptian troops. So this is the first time. Well, that, that you're kind of p- painting a picture where there must have been a certain cognitive dissonance, right? A certain gap between the very optimistic reports, we're going to take Tel Aviv in two weeks, disseminated by the regime and its, and its own press on the one hand, and what people could tell couldn't have been such an easy operation on the other Yes, and we can see we can see this sort of through certain cracks, um, in even even in the early months of the war, and I mean you have to read somewhat between the lines here, but I think we can. I'll give just one example. There was a series of articles about the bombing of Cairo. Now there were several Arab cities bombed, Cairo being one of them, by Israeli forces. But the reports that appeared in Ahram that summer were a little confusing. And here, people began to question, and even the newspaper itself began to question here. These newspapers are not only out of mouthpieces for the government. I think it's important to say that. But for example, there was a bombing in central Cairo, what would appear to be an air raid, in which actually a number of Jewish-owned stores were blown up. And, you know, this doesn't really follow the pattern of an air raid. The next day, um, there was another apparent air raid in which the streetlights did not go out. And normally that would happen. Um, And so readers actually began questioning, well, what actually happened? Now, what they guessed had happened was actually not what had happened. One was a bombing that um, historians believe actually was planted by the Muslim Brotherhood, the the one that blew up some Jewish-owned stores in in Cairo. And then another incident was perhaps uh, actually the Egyptian army's attempt to make it look like there was a raid that they had deterred or deflected, but would not actually. So people didn't know exactly what it was that had happened, but they could tell that something, what they were being told was not it. And so mm-hmm. it takes some time, I think, for people to unravel these kind of disparate details and confusing reports and conflicting pieces of information into a narrative that makes sense and fits together, is, pl- is both plausible and, and coherent. And that is where, that's, that's where I try to take this story in the article is to take us through to 1950 um, and then to 1952 to understand how we get from point A to point B. Well, we will get to that in a minute, but just to talk about the press for a little bit longer. I mean, yeah. as you point out, Egypt has had a long tradition of, of, of vibrant journalism right back to the 19th century. Um, and this was no exception. And, and you wrote about this rising star of a journalist from a very mm-hmm. recognized family, Ihsan Abdul Qudus. Yes. And you said that he, and I quote, conveyed the impression that he was channeling the talk of the street rather than seeking merely to influence it. Can you explain what you meant by that? Sure, yes. So Hassan Abdul Qudus was a, as you said, a rising star. His mother was the publisher of a very quite popular journal, Rosal Yusuf, still around today. And Hassan himself became the editor uh, in the mid-1940s prior to the war. And when I say that he came to articulate or channel the, the talk of the street, what I mean is that in his editorials, which he began writing about the war, uh, well, he began writing actually soon after it ended, but in 1950, he wrote a, a, his most famous set of pieces about it. He, he says, you know, look, there are a lot of, there's a lot of talk that's circulating right now in the aftermath of this war. I don't pretend to know 
which pieces are true and which are not. What we need is an investigation to want to better understand. But let me at least repeat the things that people are saying. Let me put them into writing because it's not just talk. There's some truth to this and we need to get to the bottom of it. And he uses some rhetorical devices, which I think are very powerful in these articles in which he says he uses the, the, the past, um, the passive voice, you know, it, um, it was said, it was said, it was said. And so he doesn't attribute these to any one particular person, but he gives the sense that these are, again, perhaps rumors. And by rumors, I don't necessarily mean false, but these are things that are being said about the conduct of the war um, in the street. It is a very sneaky rhetorical move uh, and something that I wouldn't condone as a journalist, I think. Um, but what you're saying is that he 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 played a paramount role in shaping popular opinion. Yeah. He, he claimed to be reporting it, but he was actually shaping it. Is that right? Correct. Yes, I think he shaped it. I mean, he's played, he, he plays both roles at once is what I want yeah. to say. I mean, yeah. he didn't invent the narrative. And I think that's important, the narrative of the defective weapons. But he brought together a number of different disparate reports, suspicious uh, contracts, um, political figures who suddenly appeared to have fancy cars and so forth. And he brought them together and kind of pieced them together in a way that seemed to make sense. And that to make sense of these disparate pieces of information, I think was in, in, indeed catalyzing and did influence public opinion. But partly it's because it, it gave credence to things that people believed or had heard or were saying. It gave it weight. It gave these things, these opinions and rumors weight. Yeah. Now, it seems as though this so-called Palestine arms scandal served as a valuable lesson for Nasser and the free officers about how to use the media to shape popular opinion in their favor. As we know, it wasn't long before they assumed power. Were they just better media strategists than the monarchy? It's interesting to, to, to consider. I, I do think uh, Nasser was famous for his, not only his charisma, but his ability to convey that he was speaking directly to the people. Um, we're also, as you pointed out, at a kind of interesting moment in the, the expansion of radio and especially of television and increasingly. And Nasser, of course, had quite a cinematic presence. He loved the cinema himself, including, interestingly enough, the, the screenplays that Hassan Abdul Qudus came to write in the years after 1952. He's most famous as a screenwriter. But, but, but Farouk himself in the mid-40s also appointed the, for the first time a palace press attaché. There was an increasing sense already in the 1940s that it was necessary to address the people in some respect. Now, you know, I don't think he was nearly as astute or as skilled at it as Nasser but these transformations in media did necessitate that to some extent. And people were demanding to know more. And Nasser, when, after he came to power, um, you know, I, I want to be clear about this. I mean, cer he, he certainly played on the public demand for information. But of course, <laughs> Nasser's rise to power did not inaugurate sort of a new era of, of transparency. And I don't think we should see it in, in that uh, in that way. Well, if we fast forward to today, it seems the press is still an important tool for the regime. As far as you can tell, are they just recycling the same media strategy? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I think you know, there, there are some obvious resonances today, and I think it's important to think about the, um, 
the legacies of, well, of the defective weapons rumor and the way that it was deployed in the press, and then the way that Nasser's regime after 1952 capitalized on this narrative. Now, Nasser actually did not repeat the defective weapons narrative himself. It doesn't come up in his memoirs of Palestine. But the military regime benefited significantly, of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, from it. This story helped to reinforce a separation in public consciousness between the political leadership and the somewhat lower level military leadership, right, that then ultimately assumed power in 1952. So putting the Minister of Defense and his and the top brass aside, they certainly were deemed responsible. But the rest of the army was seen as the kind of victims of this political regime's mismanagement and corruption rather than kind of in any way responsible for the defeat. And then the defective weapons narrative certainly reinforced that. And so after 1952, that sort of aura of moral purity remained with the army, which of course still basically controls Egypt today. Well, that's what I was going to ask actually about that legacy of this version that you're telling now. I mean, you wrote the military came to be viewed as a blameless and competent alternative to the monarchy rather than the party responsible for having lost a pivotal war. What do you think the legacy of that view of the military is today? Well, I think, you know, look, you know, Egyptians are highly uh, diverse in their views here. And I'm not trying to say that the military retains sort of an aura of moral purity today exactly. But I do want to say that it does remain in power. And that position, do you think, can be partly attributed to this, to this way they explained away their defeat? Yes, I do. I do. Of course, I, I don't want to oversimplify here. Um, of course. Uh, it's certainly not the only reason. But I think it is significant. I think that's one reason why films like Return My Heart, the one with which I begin the article, which uh, it's one of many films actually produced in the 50s primarily that uses this narrative of defective weapons within the plot uh, of, the, of the film, why films like this continue to be shown today. Um, Not just shown, right? They're very popular. They're quite popular. You know, um, the thing about Return My Heart, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty fantastical melodrama. Um, and it's quite fascinating to read, for example, the comments. If you look to Facebook, where Rotana posts the film every year on the anniversary of the revolution, they play it on TV, etc. To read people's comments, because people are, have quite a kind of incisive sense of humor about this film. Now, it, yes, it remains a sort of central part of popular culture, but not without derision, without mockery, without certain cynicism for the narrative that it promotes. I mean, so that exists alongside the persistence of popular culture like this. Now, the Egyptians, of course, aren't the only ones guilty of using the media. In all these ways you describe, not just press, but cinema, novel, and many other forms of propaganda, it's an age-old practice. We've seen it happen all across history, especially in wartime. I wonder if you could draw any parallels with, say, the current war in Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think, for me, one of the the... You know, I, I'm certainly not an expert in Russia and Ukraine, but for me, one of the lessons that I've drawn from studying the history of public information in Egypt across a century, because my research really starts in the 19th century, is a certain approach, a certain set of questions that I think we should be asking. 
And this applies today in Russia or in Ukraine as well, when, of course, much of the conversation centers on social media. I'm American and here in the United States where we've had a kind of very broad discussion about disinformation. And I think there has been a tendency that has somewhat frustrated me to look at the present crisis of trust in information as something that is both a product of the digital era and also very closely related to the rise of the far right. And as you point out, these are stories that actually are recycled over and over again through different media. And so I think when we look at a conflict like the one now in Russia and Ukraine, it behooves us to look back at what kind of strategies people have used to circumvent the disinformation or silence or obfuscation that may be coming from official sources. And people are incredibly ingenious, actually, in finding these kinds of strategies. Mm -hmm. And so this isn't so much a specific answer, but a question of approach. And so I just encourage people to think historically <laughs> about the current crisis or panic over disinformation and, and to look to, I mean, you can look back to the 19th century, even um, certainly earlier, to, to examine these kinds of strategies people have used to assemble their own planetary narratives. So there might be new techniques uh, provided by social media, but there's nothing new about disinformation campaigns, right? Certainly not. Chloe Borderwick, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Lydia. It was a pleasure. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. You can read Chloe's article, In Egypt, A Rumour Sparked an Overthrow, on our website, newlinesmag.com. This week's episode was produced by Christine Elhouli and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you.